1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with you, and I am joined, as always, by John Pigeon. John, how are you up there?
3: I am fantastic, Emily. I I probably can't say the same about your good self in lockdown for the 18th time.
2: Yep, it's about the 18th time, but it's okay. You know what? It's actually come at a timely point. Um, I'm happy to sit down and, you know... Review things, reflect. Two weeks is okay. If it goes any more, I might go a little bit nuts, but that's all right. More time to record yes. podcasts.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and and get to know your house and and your partner and your new puppy Henry.
2: Yep, my puppy Henry. He's certainly um, I'm mm. getting to know him quite well, and and the yes. toileting area area as well. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sure you are. Yes. Now
2: we have put it out there a few episodes in a row. Like, please send us questions. Please send us questions and we're now getting heaps of them, which is great. So thank you to awesome. the community for doing, like listening to what we're asking, which is awesome because mm. you want to produce podcasts that you really like listening to and that are relevant to you.
3: Totally. And and I must preframe: we don't know everyone's full situation when they ask the question. So it's, it's not advice, it's just simply our opinion um, and thoughts on the information that we've got at hand.
2: Most definitely. It's a very relevant thing to point out because – at certainly, you know, at a high level and in a podcast without even knowing who these people are, we, we can't give personal advice, but that's okay. We'll certainly use them as talking points and circumstances that we can hypothetically comment on.
3: Yeah, and for everyone else listening, they, they can take it and apply it to their situation and say, well, look, it's, it's completely different to my situation, but that situation I may run into at some stage, how am I going to deal with it? So hopefully it's beneficial to everyone listening in.
2: A hundred percent. Very true. So we've got a combination across a couple of different platforms, Facebook, Insta, emails um, of people who have written in. And I've got one to kick off with, which I think a number of people will get value out of this one because um, they might find themselves in this situation, maybe not yet, but down the track. It was Radina who messaged me on Instagram and she said, I was wondering if I could ask you a question on the potty. I have a property that's in joint ownership and it's with my sister, 50-50. We've built up some equity. Um, it's around 300,000, which I'd really like to use an investment for an investment property portfolio. How Would this work if our current home is jointly owned, but I wanted to buy some investments on my own? Can I use the equity? How would a bank look at this? And what is the implication of tapping into the equity um, in terms of the implications on the other party? I would love some help with this. What a question! (laughs) Wow.
3: Yes, we can uh, we can unpack this as best we can. We could almost do a whole podcast on this, to be honest. and uh, again, I'll pre-frame once more. I haven't seen these questions, so I'm, I'm getting them extremely raw. Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give it a go first of all, Emily, if you want. Yeah, go for it. Um, I think joint ventures I'm, I'm very familiar with have done a, a fair few of them myself. Um, and, and I think before we go into the depth of the answer, we just need to think about before we go into a JV uh, what the outcome's going to be. So is it going to be a two-year plan? Is it going to be a long-term buy and hold for 10 years? Uh, what are our line in the sand moments? Do we check in every 12 months and say, look, uh, are we comfortable to continue on or are we selling or are we developing or just, just knowing all of that before we get into it. So we can avoid moments like this where we say, right, I want to take some equity out to do my own thing. Uh, what do you want to do? Well, I want to do that as well, we we can't both do it because of the equity amounts and the and the percentage splits etc. So, the the first thing I would say is, regardless of whether it's JV or on your own, the banks are going to look at the total loan to value ratio. So, if the 300k of equity, as um, they mentioned, I think. Yep. Is that usable equity or is that just equity? So usable equity is the banks will lend up to eighty percent of its value minus the debt. So is that 300k of usable uh, equity? And then they will look at the servicing of the person pulling that out uh, to to then see how much they can take away from that particular property. But the downside is for the the person that's not using the equity, all of a sudden we've got an uneven split. So if we went into the JV 50-50 and that one of you takes out, say, 100 grand, uh, all of a sudden that percentage of the property makes it now a a 60-40 or a 70-30 split. So how does that work? Now, in an ideal world, you'd say, right, both of us take the same amount of equity out and we go and do with it what we want. But how the banks treat that is going to vary upon lender. So, it's really important in this case to have a a sophisticated mortgage broker in your corner.
2: Definitely. And just, I mean, I don't really answer this, but just the question of, um, so when they go to sell the property, right? Like if someone's already cashed out some equity, as you were saying, those splits start to change. I imagine that can be quite messy, right? When you go to sell it.
3: Yeah, yeah. And we only just recently had this situation and it wasn't messy by any means, but uh, one of us had paid down more of the loan than the other person. So we had to have really good, I suppose, bookkeeping notes to ensure that we're all on the same page. Every 12 months, we'd know, right, this person's paid down 10 grand more than the other person. And when it comes time to sell, we either, the other party puts in an extra 10 grand before you sell or upon selling they take the 10, the ten grand extra. Um, so yeah, really important to, to document everything that's going on. But ideally, we're, we're thinking about these things before we actually purchase the property. Uh, but yeah, a high level joint ventures are awesome to be able to get into markets sooner rather than later because we can uh, put in half the deposit that we normally would Or we're coming in maybe with a low income base, which a lot of people we speak to on the podcast are coming from a low income base, which Mm. is fine because it's early on in their career. Uh, They may understand that it might be five years before they get into the property market on their own or 10 years even. So can we get in this year or next year? Uh, through, a, through a JV mechanism.
2: Just a side note there, it would be cool to do another episode and people can give us feedback if they want it, but um, on joint ventures or even if we could interview someone who's done one successfully with someone who's not a family member, like a friend joint venture, because I often think that's a common one. It's like, oh, you know, my friend and I or an extended family member, like an auntie, And, you know, a niece or something like that going in together, I'm always fascinated by that and how people set them up and what sort of rules they put around for themselves as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. And again, coming from my experience, I I did a JV with, I suppose, a a friend, a very good friend um, and his wife. And yeah, we... I think if anyone's thinking about doing it, you're treating it the same whether it's a friend or a family member. The documentation, the the advice, the the uh, the signing off on it, meeting with the solicitors before you do it, uh, talking to mortgage brokers, all of that back end stuff, due diligence you're doing regardless of who you who you're doing it with. The the only exception might be if uh, you buy a house together with your husband or wife or long term partner. Mm. That essentially is a jv isn't it but because you're living together uh yours is mine and and mine is yours type um, thing in a in a, a legal case
2: yeah definitely well i think there's certainly enough there for us to potentially do an extended episode so keep posted everybody i think that would be a, a good one if you have specific questions on joint ventures always feel free to put them in too um we'd love to do that for you now um for a change of pace and actually this is one that um I've seen come up a fair bit in the Facebook group of late. Laura Watt, she has asked about Dutch auctions. She's currently in one, and it's slow. It's slowly destroying me, she says. Um, but one <laughs> question I've often seen in the group, just extending off Laura's statement, there is a lot of people not quite understanding the best and final rule um, when it comes to placing offers. And people are feeling like, oh, but I only missed out just by $5,000. And But the agent said best and final. Well, the nature of her best and final is literally what it says, best offer and your final offer. No changing. It is what it is. You could lose it by five or you could win it by 30. You just don't know. Mm, it's a tricky yes, one, isn't it?
3: Yes. Yeah. How, how have you gone? Have you seen much of it going on in Melbourne?
2: Well, um, funnily enough, I was in a situation recently where um, – it was meant to go to auction and we wanted to buy it before. The vendor was happy to um, sell it before. So we place first, and I don't know if this is the same in every state, but in Victoria, the person who places first, their offer first, if there's someone who comes in higher, although the offer is not disclosed how much higher, yeah. you get a right of reply. So it's always best to be mm-hmm. in first because you get a second shot effectively. Everybody yep. else gets yep. one. Um, and we had one where... The agent hinted to me, he didn't disclose, but he sort of somewhat in a roundabout way hinted that even if our offer wasn't the highest, our terms were looking much better. And if we could just stretch even a little bit, we might be in front. Now, we actually decided not to. Um, and it got sold to the other party. Um, I'm still waiting for it to be unconditional so they can tell me what it sold for. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it happens often. Um, I've missed them by a few thousand. I've won one by $500 before. Like you got to put in <laughs> weird figures for these things.
3: I know, I know. I, I, I hear your pain, Laura. I, I hate them. Mm. Um, I was actually involved in one last week and $500 was the amount that we actually – uh, one buy. There you go. Right, it was Sunday night for all uh, all days that we had a, had to have our best and final in buy, which is fine. I'm cool with that. So it comes Sunday night. I've put mine in, and they've put theirs in, and they said, "Yep, you're uh, you're the you're the winning bidder." Okay, fantastic. Monday morning, I get a phone call from the agent. I look the and and. Quick backstory, the owner is undergoing a massive uh, renovation of the property. So one of the conditions of the contract was this is all going to be complete. Here are the approved plans. This is the condition that it's going to be completed in and that'll be all done by the time that the purchaser takes over. So they're halfway through this renovation, which you can see is going to be magnificent by the way. But the agent rings me Monday morning and says, I've spoken to the owner. Uh, they like your offer but they think they're going to finish the renovation now and then take it to market oh, and you're kidding me my patience on a Monday morning wasn't good <laughs> you and had a coffee? I said oh, I hadn't have a, <laughs> had a coffee and I said you're kidding me this is absolute rubbish and and this is probably an example of the hot markets that we're currently experiencing is, well, the owner's clearly getting greedy here um, and not to go off topic too much but the Dutch off auction process of, uh, of best offers buy, you just don't know what the other person's um, going to bid mm. and in all honesty, I don't want to play devil's advocate but you don't even know if there is another bidder uh, <laughs> like you, you could be bidding against yourself, and that's the that's the unfortunate situation that you've got. So, depending on your personality, you may offer ten grand more than you need to, twenty grand more, thirty grand more. Like it's just, and that's where having a, an expert in the middle does definitely help. Like like yourself, Emily, to be able to say, well, yeah, let's um, cool the cool the jets. We we don't need to go any higher than this figure. And walk away, and we'll find another one. Um, yeah, it's it's a, uh, yeah, Laura, I'm I'm absolutely with you. We don't like them, but uh, and in some cases, it's better to go to auction, isn't it? At least you know on the day, who we're talking to, who we're dealing with, who who else is in the room or on the front lawn, and we know the price is a price.
2: Just um, one final thing to add on that topic, particularly when it's you know you're placing an offer. Um, It's offers buy or best and final buy. And I think we've touched on this in a previous episode, but it's good to refresh. When it's a situation where it is an an owner who's, you know, selling on their family home potentially, or someone who has an emotional connection to the home, putting not not an essay, we don't need a letter, but just two or three sentences about who you are and what your intentions are with the home can sometimes be like that some people want their home to go to a good person. They want to know the mm-hmm. context of who that is, um, which when an auction you don't have any control over, particularly a lot of deceased estates that get sold at auction um, are often just land value and it's really sad to see, you know, the family home knocked down. Whereas in yeah. a private sale um, with offers, you can you can give some commentary around who you are and what you intend to do with the property. And I'm not saying yeah. it works every time, but sometimes the emotional pull does work if it's a very close to you know which offer looks better
3: yeah that's right yeah it, it's you're right it's not always the highest price is it it's a, it's the best conditions and part of the due diligence is why is the vendor selling that's that's your first question every time isn't it why they're selling and if you've got a genuine agent they can uh, they can tell you sometimes a bit more than they should but you can uh, you can get some ideas on what your offer might be and the conditions around it.
2: Most definitely. Thank you, Laura, for um, bringing up the topic of Dutch auctions, a a very um, common one in the group that we love chatting about. So thank you for submitting that through. We will be back in just a moment to answer some more questions from other people who there's floods of them. We could do a number of episodes on them, but we'll pick a few to chat through in just a moment. Now, we are back with some more questions, John, and I've got a good one here. I actually really like this one. Karina asks us, how do you work out the must-haves and the nice-to-haves when you're looking for a property, particularly when it's your first home as an owner-occupier? And I love how Karina has defined must-haves and nice-to-haves because let's be clear, people, they are two very, very different things.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, Yeah. So, Karina, great question. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that question, isn't there? In terms of must haves and nice to haves. So, our must haves are bread, water, clothes, and a a roof over our head.
2: Bare essentials.
3: Yeah, the bare essentials. Back in the 1900s, it was cloth. We didn't actually need to be fully clothed, but (laughs) we we were hunter gatherers. Yeah. Fast forward to 2021, which we're in right now. Everyone's got their different requirements as to as to must haves and nice to have. So, this is a very very broad answer that we can give here, and it really comes back to what you want now and what you want later, and what you're prepared to forego now, and and what your, I suppose, what what's going to make your lifestyle what you want it to be right now, um, that doesn't really give her much uh, specifics, but I'm sure uh, Emily, you'll talk more about the specifics.
2: Yeah, look, I think, um, so it's a common one that I deal with daily with with buyers that we work with and just people generally asking um, this sort of question, like, where, where should my wriggle room be? What should be an absolute must-have in a property versus like, if it has that, that's nice. So I think sometimes people get fixated on, like I'll give you an example actually recently. I was working with a client and um, it was um, mum and dad were helping out as well, which is not uncommon. And mum was definite, absolutely hell-bent that it must have a dishwasher, must have. Now to me, the ability to put a dishwasher in would be more than sufficient as a must, you know, must have. Plumbing available to put in a dishwasher. Now, that's probably a micro example, um, but sort of on a higher level, what I would say is particularly um, if it's your first home and a lot of people I find, you know, want to hold on to their first home as an investment property down the track, The must have needs to be high level tick boxes, you know, rental appeal in an area that's going to attract a good tenant for long term, you know, longevity of that property. And then sort of more on a a micro level, some people get fussed on, oh, does it have built in wardrobes? Does it have enough storage? If it, The place has got space, you can make storage, and there's so many um, ways that you can make storage in a home as long as it's got the space there to do so. um, You don't have to have built in wardrobes in every room, you can make wardrobes in every room. Um, Totally. But there's the fundamentals, I guess, as long as everything's in the right spot. And what I mean by that is you might buy something that's older that needs a facelift, but the kitchen, the way the kitchen's laid out, the mechanics of it all, and the plumbing and where everything sits is in the right spot. That's a good must-have. The nice to have is a nice looking kitchen which you can actually make, you know, and manufacture yourself. So it is um it is a broad question, but I think the biggest thing is, particularly when you're living in the property, is to work out, as you touched on before, the lifestyle component, which usually comes down to location, versus what you must physically have in the property, which is always an ongoing debate. If you throw a partner in the mix or someone else you're buying with, trying to get the middle ground is often a challenge for most people. So, maybe write down your must-haves individually and then cross-check them together to make sure you're on the Mm. same page when you go house hunting.
3: Yeah, that's a very good one. And I suppose I was listening to that question thinking it's just owner-occupier. I wasn't thinking as an investment property. Mm. But I, I think every time I've bought whether it's to live in or to invest, I've always gone in with an investor mindset. That's just who I am and the way I'm wired. Now, some people may already know that uh, we're in the process of building a house at the moment. We haven't commenced, but we're going through the must-haves and the like-to-haves. And I can assure you, um, my wife wants more uh, must-haves more than I have want <laughs> must-haves because I couldn't care less. What I live in, to be honest, what's your <laughs> like key must loca- have? <laughs> well, of course, uh, the the males listening would know that it's a big garage and a big <laughs> a and cave. a big deck, <laughs> a man cave and a big deck that I can watch the footy on. Um, <laughs> so those things don't really cost too much. But I, I suppose what that comes back to, and and you've sort of touched on it as well, is we've got the bones have got to be there, and we can always add a dishwasher in later. We've got to, we, we can't um, add another room if you've already designed um, something that doesn't allow for another room, right? So, it, the age of the property is one thing, but you can, you can make improvements, uh, you can extend back, but you can't change something internally that's that's already there that may cost a lot of money to, to, to then go and fix. So the better bones you've got, yeah, the, the greater you've got to improve. But the cosmetic alterations are probably what I would focus on as things that you can do down the track. If it's a cost thing, you just want to make sure that, yeah, look, we don't need that dishwasher now or um, I'm, I'm looking at your kitchen right now and and I can see a built-in oven there. <laughs> so, can we put that in later? Um, can we can we put a stone bench top in later? Like all those things that we can make alterations to. Uh, essentially, when we're buying. We just want to make sure that it's it's got good bones. And, and you mentioned location, Emily. I think it's more important than the actual house itself, um, not not getting wrapped up in the uh, the emotions of what it looks like now, but what it what we can transform it to. That's the exciting bit from a wealth creation point of view. Mm. And it's an exciting thing from, a, uh, I suppose, a, an emotional point of view, but it does stress some people out that don't really want to go through that.
2: Yeah, it's very true. Now, um, I've got a question to round out our Q&A episode for today, but just before I do, there's one I want to touch on that we need to take a mental note of. I'll write it down. But someone has asked for the Property Podcast, what are some red flags with properties apart from building and pest? Now, Amelia, that I think we will do in a full-on different episode. There's all things we can talk about um, in terms of like Flood zoning, bushfire prone, Mm. um, backing onto a park, backing onto a school, all things we can talk through that might be a red flag or not a red flag. So, Amelia, keep posted. We will do an episode on that for you. In the meantime, I've got a very broad question, which I know it will apply to so many of our community. So, Dave McCarthy asks, how do I convince my mum to stop telling me to buy a house in the current insane market? Now, that just, I think, is such a, I can just already picture that situation in so many households where mum and dad are trying to convince their kids to buy something. Oh, you should get into the market. It's, you know, you definitely should get in. Now, I don't know about you, John, but I don't necessarily disagree with parents encouraging people to get into the property market. I personally feel it's a good thing, obviously based on your own circumstances of what you can afford and how that impacts your lifestyle. But I am all for encouraging people, if they can, to get into the market. What's your view on that?
3: Yeah, one word that worries me a little bit there in that question, and that's convince. We we shouldn't Mm. be trying to convince anyone to do anything. We should be educating them to make uh, their, their own de- decision or at least support us because of what we're wanting to do. So I, I actually had a conversation, a clarity call with someone yesterday who it was actually the opposite. They were looking at buying an apartment in um, in Sydney for for long term. That's what they wanted. They loved the suburb and they loved the, uh, what, what it provided for them from a work point of view and, and a lifestyle but their parents were saying, why would you spend that much on a, a 60 square piece of area that you're going to live in? Why don't you rent or rent vest, et cetera, right? So the, the whole parents or family having an influence or close friends having an influence on my decision is a really dangerous one because their interests are there. Absolutely, they care for you more than anyone else in the world but sometimes they're their method or their their recommendations aren't really full of any sort of education or or reason. It's just a um it's just an opinion because of the care factor that they've got um upon your life. So yeah, look, c- convince no. You you want to be able to say to them, right, you can hold a conversation and say, look, I'm not trying to convince you here, but these are the things that as to why I want to get into the market now. And and talking to someone from from outside as a third party is, is really beneficial in this, I believe. But I think generally speaking, you're right. You want to get into the market to control the controllables. You know that if the price goes up, you've taken advantage of that. 12 months down the road, if we're still kicking the can and we haven't purchased and the market's gone up 10%, we've missed out on that. Now, conversely, if it goes down 10% and we've bought – well, so be it. But at least we're in the market, and it's going to be a long-term hold. And and I, I could feel the uh, the parents' um, pain there in the sense that all they've seen in the last five years, depending on where you're where you're living, is is price growth. So, no, I don't think that will continue to the rate that it has been. Um, but but that's not essentially the the only factor that you need to consider when you when you're buying a home or not buying a home now.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think um, the biggest takeaway out of that is all, always to try and, if you can, get a third party involved to be able to help you, whether that is someone who is a financial planner who's helping you roadmap, you know, what. That looks like on a on a budget level, on a financial wealth level, whether that is an advocate or whether that's someone, even if it's not directly mum and dad, but someone who is property savvy, who does have multiple properties and has been down that road. Um, I think that can be really helpful. Without you know having an uncle in your ear who's only got one under their belt, like I don't think that's necessarily the best opinion. Maybe if they bought it twenty years ago, but um, just he's someone.
3: So you're saying it's a clarity call with me. Is that what uh, you're alluding to? That's
2: 100% yeah. where I was leading to. <laughs> and all, in all honesty, John, I have people um, who contact me potentially after having a clarity call with you because I think you're really good at providing that also because the, the you know, the wealth side of things, which I don't necessarily personally touch on. Um, it's so good that property and finance go hand in hand, really, when we look at the big picture um, and being able to have a clarity call. A lot of people are like, should I do this or should I do that? And what does that look like? And let's map it out and let's talk it out. So if you're one of those people who's sort of debating to or even just a question of is now a good time for me to be buying? Or where should I be looking right now? What should I be looking at and considering? Definitely um, booking a Clarity Call with John. The link is always in the show notes below. Um, I think that would be very beneficial. And I'm sure there's people listening who have already had one with you, like nodding their heads going, yep, it does provide a lot of clarity. So Mm -hmm. definitely a good resource to have on board.
3: Yeah, cool. Thanks for the plug, Emily.
2: That's okay. No worries. (laughs) Now, we have... Uh, come to the end of today's episode but people who have submitted questions that are chunky questions that are episode worthy we will certainly give you a shout out when we cover that topic in its own episode itself but keep the questions coming everyone because we love them um, and we love talking about what's relevant to you and what you want to hear about
3: absolutely and you may have noticed that we've gone a bit deeper today we've we've extended uh public opinion as says we as said we want to go deeper uh we want to be longer we want to hear emily's voice for longer so that that's that's what we're providing
2: not in sure not sure that's entirely true but we'll roll with it um <laughs> next minute are going to turn around we're hearing too much of emily's voice please stop
3: <laughs> never
2: <laughs> well until next time we will speak soon. Absolutely. See you guys.
3: See ya. bye.
1: We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
3: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education.
2: That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps.
3: I've created the Solvair Online Academy open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
2: And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate, to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers.
3: Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and